Join me today in John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Many in this room would know this, some would not, but I grew up in the home of a first responder. My dad is a retired police sergeant who served over 30 years on the police department in Adrian, Michigan. So there is a lot that I remember about growing up in the home of a first responder. Some of my early, very first memories are my dad in his uniform. And I can remember he would be putting it on or taking it off. And that was that, that very thick patent leather belt that would hold his pistol and other equipment that he would carry. And so I can hear my dad put that belt on because it made this specific sound, this little squeak of the leather. He would unroll it and he would put it around his waist. And, and I could remember just as a kid that sense of pride that my dad was heading off to work, doing a job that not everyone could or would do, but my dad did. I can remember the very real sense of pride that I had when I would ride with my dad in the police car at the front of a parade, see all of the, you know, my, my schoolmates, my friends on the side, and I would flip the switch and turn on the siren and look at them with a sense of entitlement and maybe put my hand on the shotgun that was right there in the column. I can remember the additional sense of satisfaction as a kid when other kids were saying what their dads did. You know, my dad's an accountant and my dad's a builder and my dad is such and such. And I would say my dad's a cop and my dad can throw your dad in jail, you know. I just <laughs> love the sense of, of who it was and what it is that my dad did. I also remember the deep emotion his position brought into our home. I remember the profound sadness that came home with my dad after he pulled a child out of the river who had drowned when the ice broke through. I remember the re relief that we felt when we learned that he had removed his gun belt and entered into a basement with an armed man and talked him into surrendering his weapon. I remember the pride that we felt when his valor was recognized with formal commendations, one which stated that he, quote, acted beyond normal duty of a police officer when he went into a car that was on fire to help the driver get out without regard for his personal safety. It was noted that if it hadn't been for Redland's efforts, the driver would have died. And I remember the time when another officer on my dad's police force was shot and killed during what would be for most, uh, what would be called a routine traffic stop. There really is no such thing as a routine traffic stop. And at that moment, Bobby Williams in the line of duty laid down his own life. My dad is now 80 years of age, but he is still a cop. When he sleeps, his dreams are filled with times when his body was strong and he's still fighting the bad guys. Not long ago, my parents came upon an accident and my dad isn't driving anymore, but he got out of the car, went into the middle of the road to, to direct traffic until the police arrived. I'm not certain that at that stage, it is wise for a 79-year-old with Parkinson's to direct traffic, <laughs> but that was my dad's first response. My mom has one of his uniforms saved. 
Someday he will be buried in his dress blues. Ever the first responder, ever the cop. These are the kinds of memories that I have. And many of you share the first responder memories that are here today. Of course, today is September 11th. It's a day that we also remember another group of people who laid down their lives. And we should note that of the 2,977 victims killed on 9-11, 415, 415 of them were first responders, those who went to address the terrorist attacks at the World Trade Center. These fallen include firefighters, police officers, emergency medical technicians, and other first responders. These made what we often refer to as the ultimate sacrifice. And today, along with our fellow Americans, we pause to reflect, to honor, and to remember. And with this sobering thought in mind, we look in on another very somber occasion. Jesus and his disciples were in what we refer to as an upper room. And Jesus is preparing those, his followers, those that he had lived with day in and day out for some three and a half years, that exclusive group that we refer to as the disciples. He is preparing them for what is about to take place. Soon, that last supper will come to its conclusion. They will exit the upper room. They will cross the Kidron Valley and enter into Gethsemane. And there, after a time of prayer, a group of soldiers will come and apprehend Jesus, the Christ. Shortly thereafter, will unfold a mock trial and Jesus, like a lamb to the slaughter, will offer willingly his life on behalf of another. It will be the greatest exchange that has ever been offered. What Jesus is knowingly preparing to do is, I believe, offer the greatest response to the greatest need. We often use superlatives in ways that aren't completely accurate. We talk about the greatest this or the greatest that. But I want you to know I'm not trying to use a superlative in ways that are only fantastic. I truly believe that what Jesus is offering is in fact the greatest response, never a greater, to the greatest need, never a deeper. The Bible says in John chapter 15, beginning in verse number 12, these words, this is my commandment, Jesus speaking, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. As we pause and consider this passage of scripture today, the first thing that stands out to me as I read these words is, is as we begin the unavoidable commandment of love. The unavoidable commandment of love. Now, some might ask the question, and it's a legitimate question, can love really be commanded? In other words, can you command someone to love? Because Jesus just said, this is my commandment that ye love one another. How many of you remember a time when you were a kid? Well, let me ask this question first. How many of you grew up with siblings 
Clearly it's not your fault, but they were hard to get along with. Raise your hand. Many of you had siblings just as did I. Okay, it wasn't our fault, but they were difficult to get along with. How many of you ever had, as, as was the case with me, how many of you ever had your mom, after some squabble with your siblings, tell you to tell your, your, your sibling the words, you tell them right now, you go tell him that you love him. How many of you ever had your mom tell you that? And how many of you ever said it with less than sincere emotion? Okay. And here you are standing across from the person that you just wanted to rip their eyes out and you're supposed to say, I love you, okay? Not the easiest words to offer. So we naturally begin to wonder about this commandment of love. But we would remind ourselves that quite truly love is more of an action than it is a feeling. This is why a first responder is so consistently love on display. Their actions speak for themselves. For example, love is climbing up the stair tower in the World Trade Center when everyone else is going down. It is love in action. It is love that was commanded and love that is followed. Mike Cahoey is one such firefighter who was climbing up the North Tower when he heard an enormous explosion. It was the South Tower collapsing. He continued to climb until his radio squawked and everyone was ordered to descend and evacuate immediately. Mike was one of those who made it out alive. There's a deep sense of duty when it comes to the actions of a first responder, but a duty to what, we might ask? I believe it is a duty to do what is right, a duty to country, we might ask, a duty to oath. All of these are valid, but they all come from even a higher duty. Ultimately, it is a duty or what we might call a commandment to love one another. That is, I am commanded by my actions to do right by those to whom I have opportunity to do so. All throughout the book of 1 John, we see something repeated over and over again. It's not only or exclusive uh, a, a truth to 1 John. We see it throughout scripture, but it's condensed here. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, for this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that ye should love one another. 1 John 3, 23, and this is the commandment, that we should believe on the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another. 1 John 4, 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. This is an unavoidable commandment of love. It may be absent of emotion, but our first responders day in and day out, time and time and time again, shift after shift, and oftentimes in settings and situations that are far less than appreciated. They are, in a sense, observing the commandment of love to do right by those with whom they have the opportunity, even the commandment to do so. 
It is the unavoidable commandment of love. But as we go a little further in this passage, we see again in John 15, verse number 12, as I have loved you. It's the unparalleled companion of love. There's something now that Jesus says, okay, we have spent these three and a half years together speaking specifically to his followers, the disciples. They had a companionship. There was something that they had watched unfold time and time again. This is not just an empty command from the lips of Jesus. This was the reality of life of the one that they called now their friend. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, let me show you how it's done. He already made this statement to them earlier through an act of unparalleled service. And that is by washing the disciples' feet, the master, actually humbling himself in a way culturally that was shocking to the disciples. When Jesus removes his robe, and here the the one most important in their midst girds himself with a towel, and then he humbles himself, and he begins to, as the servant would for the master, he begins to wash the disciples' feet. In John 13, 15, he said, for I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. The, the same example that I have, le- have left for you, this is your example. You've seen your companion in a way that is quite frankly unparalleled. Who else does this? Who else does what we so oftentimes seen exemplified, fleshed out right before us time and time again. Well, Jesus, of course, the greatest example, but I'm not so certain that there are not continual examples in those that we call our hometown heroes. I know they're oftentimes misaligned and misrepresented, their motives misconstrued, But I will tell you day in and day out, these are they that among their fellows, their companions, they are providing for us some picture of unparalleled love. They've given us an example. Examples are important and I lived with those in my house growing up. My dad and my mom living out, instilling in us as children, you do this, you don't do this. We, we hear, of course, a lot about firearms today, but I, I grew up understanding the importance of a firearm, how it was to be handled, how it wasn't to be handled. We started out with a BB gun, and my dad would take us and show us how to fire a BB gun, how to load it, how to cock it, where never to point it, how to always know if there was something in its chamber I mean, I I grew up knowing all of these details because my dad said, here's the example. If as a kid, we took the barrel of a BB gun and pointed it in any direction where there was a person, my dad let us know in no uncertain terms that is never how to handle a firearm. And he reinforced that in ways that we would never forget. (laughs) It didn't prevent the curiosity of an early teen. And I'm saying this in a way that is is embarrassing to me. My parents were gone. My brother was upstairs. No one else in the house. And as an early teen, there were things that I knew to do and not to do. And one thing was never to play with my dad's gun. This was back in the 70s, long before people would, would put them in safes and have devices that would actually read your own fingerprint or your hand to be able to remove a device. 
I knew where my dad kept his little gun that he used as a concealed carry weapon when dad would be off duty. No one was home and I went up and I, and I took that from the place where it was and I removed the clip from the gun because I knew you'd always remove it. And then I also knew that there would never be one necessarily in the chamber, but my dad had always taught me never assume, never assume. I learned all this by example, but didn't always follow it because right now as an early teen, I have a handgun in my hand in my home. So I removed the clip and then to make sure that the, the chamber was empty, I pointed it at the pointed it at the floor and shot. Much to my surprise, <laughs> it was not empty. But it was now, okay, it was now. And I fired the gun in our living room on the floor. Now this was the day of shag carpeting, okay? So you could not see what I did. Uh, my brother was upstairs in the shower and um, he asked later, did you hear something? I didn't hear, no, I didn't hear, <laughs> didn't hear a thing. And, um, and I fired a gun in the home. Obviously, I put the gun away. And, um, and I didn't tell my dad until I was 47, okay? <laughs> Actually, I, I was a little younger than that. I was probably in my 30s. And I got a spanky. No, I, I didn't get a spanky. Do you know what I did get is I, I got a lifetime reminder of example. I got a lifetime reminder of what to and what not to do. Jesus had followers that had a daily example, although they didn't always follow it. He fleshed out, he lived out in front of them day after day after day, just like I have done to you. You follow my example. It is the unparalleled companion of love. The final thing that I notice in this passage is the undeserved commitment of love. The undeserved commitment of love. In John chapter 15, verse number 13, part of our text today, the Bible says, greater love, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. On September 10th, 2011, American Airlines pilot Steve Scheibner bid for a flight the next day. At the day before a pilot is available to fly, he goes through a series of steps to secure the flight. At three in the afternoon on September 10th, he logged into the pilot's page with American Airlines to see if there were any unassigned flights for the next day. The flight he saw was flight 11 out of Boston, headed to LA. It would depart at 7.45 a.m. and it read available. There was no pilot assigned, so he placed his name in the appropriate place and told his wife that he would be headed to LA. There is a process that now unfolds. The final confirmation is a phone call when a real person will call the pilot and tell him that trip is confirmed. He already had his computer confirmation and the final confirmation would come shortly with a phone call. Again, there's a 30 minute window for a phone call to come which will confirm the flight. That phone call never came. What was taking place was that another pilot, Tom McGinnis, 
with slightly more seniority, saw that same flight available about 20 minutes after Captain Scheibner had bid the flight. With just minutes of flight availability left, McGinnis called and asked if he could get that flight. He was told that there was a pre-assignment, but if he wanted it, he could get it, but needed to call back within the next 20 minutes to have it assigned. He called back and requested the flight. When he did, they removed the name S. Scheibner and inserted the name T. McGinnis. There was an exchange of names. The next day, McGinnis showed up for work, left on time, flew to about 23,000 feet, and very shortly thereafter, Flight 11 was the first of the hijacked planes to fly into World Trade Center, Tower One. Tom McGinnis died, and Steve Scheibner lived. Steve Scheibner said this, Tom sat in the seat that I was qualified to sit in. And by all rights, that was my seat that day. I should have been in that seat. Not to diminish what Tom McGinnis did, but to magnify what Jesus Christ did. He died in our place. He took the seat that we are qualified to sit in. He died in our place. In Romans chapter five, beginning in verse six, the Bible says, for when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that, or here's how, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Just as Tom and Steve exchanged places, Christ brought about the most marvelous exchange that has ever been offered. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Christ died for our sins. I believe that Jesus Christ offered the greatest response to the greatest need. Some might say, well, why do I deserve to die? Because the Bible reminds us that the wage, and that is what I have rightly earned, the wage of my sin is death, and death meaning separation, and in this case, separation from God. What I have earned, the seat that I deserve to sit in, is eternal separation from a holy God. When Jesus died, as a substitute, not because he earned it, because he lived a sinless, perfect, spotless life. When Jesus died a sinner's death for sinners, just like me, the Bible tells us that he cried out, my God, my God. Interesting, throughout the course of Jesus' life, he would refer to him as my father, my father. But now on the cross, he cries out, recognizing the position that he is in. My God, 
my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When God is now rent from God and Jesus bearing my sin and my shame on my cross in my place. He paid the debt he did not owe. The songwriter wrote words, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my savior's blood? Died he for me. It's what Jesus Christ accomplished. It was the greatest response to the greatest need. He certainly is the greatest first responder. He proved he was God by coming victorious out of a borrowed tomb. And now he ever lives, offering the greatest gift ever offered, the gift of God, which is eternal life. I was 17 years old when I accepted that gift, eternal life. It means that once it's offered, it can never end. And I did it through the most simple childlike means that are possible. I simply recognized who Jesus Christ truly is. He's God who died in my place. And I recognized who I am. I am a sinner and my sin deserves separation from God. And I realized that God was offering to me the gift of eternal life. Someday I will put off this earthly tabernacle, this tent of clay, so to speak, and, and I will at that moment forever be with the Lord. If there's a person in here today, a person that may be watching, who has never yet responded to the greatest of offerings ever offered to man, may today be your day of salvation.